Our second reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when the people prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay on the ground, around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. The word of the Lord. So a couple weeks back, um, we were looking at Exodus, which we've been doing all summer, and Dean Miller was preaching, and he gave us this way of, of thinking about the whole of the book of Exodus. And it was these words, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And these are words, the orientation, disorientation, reorientation, that is part of the narrative of the whole of the book of Exodus, and really all of the Bible that they start in orientation, this is what they know their life to be, and then everything gets thrown upside down, and they are disoriented, and they need to be reoriented towards God. And part of the reason that this is important is because we need to see the story of Exodus as not just a story of delivery. 
It's not just a story of delivery from slavery. It is that. But it's also a story of Israel becoming a nation, becoming God's people, becoming who they were made to be. It is delivery out into what is disorientation so they can be reoriented into relationship with God and becoming his people. One commentator summarized it this way, the survival of the people depended on the transformation of their culture. And by culture, he means their way of life, their assumptions and priorities. Israel ultimately had to move from a life of forced submission to Pharaoh into trusting and serving God alone. They had to move from a known and expected way of life, although it was a horrible one, like to live in Egypt in slavery was a horrible one, but they understood it, into daily dependence on God in a land they didn't understand, in a life that was nothing like they expected. They needed reorientation, and reorientation takes time. This summer, we're in the summer of discernment in our church, which has been from the beginning, and we're calling every person to seek God on their own. And we've been talking about these words identity a lot. We've been talking about a gospel identity and a kingdom identity. And I, they're, they're not up on the screen, but we also have a natural identity, the way we think of ourselves, a false identity, the way that we take in the lies of our brokenness. But God wants to call us into a gospel identity, finding your identity in Christ, in who God is and what he has done for you, how God sees you, and ultimately to live into what I'm calling a kingdom identity, the way that God uniquely made you to reflect him in the world and to build his kingdom. What we're looking for is reorientation this summer. To find our identity in Christ, to live out of our calling from God. Each of us, much like Israel, has a culture, a culture of our own, like our way of life, okay? So you could see this if one of us tracked you over the course of a week, we could see where you spend your time, how you interact with people, the things that are important to you, your work and your play and your family and your friends and your money and all the things that you do with them. They start to reveal your priorities and assumptions. It's your culture. It's what you think is normal and how a person is supposed to live. And it also includes all of your wants and desires and all these things that are a part of your personal culture. Most of us in our culture, our own individual culture, get our identity from something other than God. We get our identity from our success or from being liked or from our kids' happiness or whatever. There's something in our lives that we turn to to say, this gives me meaning. This tells me I'm worthwhile. If this is failing, I'm not worthwhile. What this is saying is that we probably need culture transformation too. We need to move into disorientation and ultimately reorientation. And that's why we've been using this daily devotional, although it's really sort of a weekly devotional, to guide you through scriptures, Psalms and Exodus, but also to encourage you to seek the Lord on your own, to listen to how God would speak about you, to give you affirmations of your gospel identity and maybe even your calling in, his, in your kingdom identity. And I'm gonna read some of the, the words that people have heard in the midst, they've shared them on listen at ChristChurchVienna.com or in some of our uh, hearing or learning to listen gatherings or events. So here are things that people, as they were seeking God, got encouragement from God, okay? 
So they would seek in silence, and what, God, what do you want to tell me? One person said, they heard from God, you are my child. You are beloved, another person. You are my light. You are my hero. You are my daughter. You are my son. This is their gospel identity. Different people hearing the encouragement of how God sees them in Christ. Others shared these words or phrases, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Rest in me. Wait for me. Trust me. These phrases, these words sound like God. Speaking into people's lives who've been seeking him, getting the encouragement that God is for them. He loves them. He is with them. Some people have even had words or phrases that aligned with a kingdom identity, a calling. So a couple people uh, shared they heard this, 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 this kind of identity. You are a leader, so go lead. You are my cultivator. You are a witness. You are an encourager. You are a caregiver. This is a kingdom identity, something you're called to live into. But we don't often live on that basis. We don't often live on the basis of you are loved. You are a child. I care about you. We don't often live... L- leaning into God saying, I do not fear. I, I will rest in the Lord. We're living out of our kingdom identity, that calling as cultivators or encouragers or caregivers or leaders. Like Israel, we too need reorientation to become the people God made and called us to be. And that's why the story of manna and God's provision of manna is a good place to start as we're looking at reorientation because The manna provision was actually not only a way that God showed himself, but it was a way of reorienting Israel to know and trust God, to know and trust God every day. So the setup is Israel's in the wilderness. And according to the story, they've been out of Egypt for several weeks, a couple months. And you have to think about what's happened in their lives, okay? You're the Israelites. You have been delivered from harsh, brutal slavery in Egypt into a harsh, brutal desert wasteland. You have not moved from a bad thing to a good thing. Like the expectation is that you move from slavery to a promised land, right? They move from slavery to a wilderness. Their circumstances, if you looked around in that, in that world where there is a, a wasteland, and a wilderness, basically meant it was uninhabited and probably uninhabitable. There's no water sources. There's no regular food sources. These are hopeless circumstances. The only way they could survive is to completely depend on God, which was not their normal culture. You know, our view is God delivers you from bad things to good things, right? If something bad's happened in your life and he kind of brings you out of it, the next thing should be a good thing hey, we just got brought out of slavery and now the promised land. But it doesn't always happen that way. What happens if our lives go from one bad thing, even as we're seeking and following God into another bad thing? Well, what happens is we grumble. But thankfully, the Israelites did that too. Let's look at what they did here in verses two and three. It's fantastic wording here. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, 
Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. I mean, that's all we did all day long. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, the Bible is filled with complaint against God. David in the Psalms complains at God. Things are not going his way. People are hunting him. He's almost going to die. David comes to God and says, you have made promises to me, God, where are you? But in David's complaints, it's not grumbling the way this is put down. His complaints are directed at God because he knows the nature and character of God, the promises of God, and he does trust God. He's just angry. He's upset. And God says, bring your anger to me. Bring your upsetness and disappointment to me. I can take it. And sometimes in your prayers, you need to do that. But what the Israelites are doing here is not that. Rather, they are accusing God. They're accusing God. This is functionally a legal case being brought against God. You get this at the end of Exodus uh, 15. You get it throughout Exodus 16, and especially in Exodus 17, that's filled with all sorts of legal language, courtroom language. Basically, Israel is prosecuting a case. Somebody is guilty of wrongdoing, of crime. They're, they're saying, we need a trial and we're going to execute somebody. And Moses and Aaron are much easier to execute than God. But what they're doing in bringing this grumbling is they are judging God. They're acting as judges of God. And they're basically saying, he is not good and he cannot be trusted. When circumstances go bad, when stress comes into our life, it tends to bring out the worst in all of us, right? We get that fear brain. We talked about it last week. We basically see that there's no way out. Fear brain has no imagination, no creativity, no ability to see more than death or death. And here the Israelites, in pretty bad circumstances, are faced with what they can only see as death. And they react as just any of us would. When we are under stress, whatever it is that causes you stress, usually it moves us into fear and trying to survive. And so we accuse and we doubt. And we accuse and we doubt everyone. When you're under stress, you accuse and doubt your parents. You accuse and doubt teachers, your spouse. Everyone on the road is trying to run you over, cut you off. They're all jerks. Everyone in the office, everyone at work, they are out to kill you. You better kill them first. Our grumbling takes the place of accusing and doubting everyone around us, including God. How does God respond to their doubts and accusations? With mercy. He responds with astounding mercy. He does not strike them down as we would expect. Actually, he says, tell the people to come near, come before me, which usually means, and I will slaughter them in our thinking. It's the Old Testament, right? No, come near so I can show them my glory. He extends incredible patience and mercy and generosity to Israel, who is doubting and accusing him. He provides for them manna, daily food, and invites them into relationships saying, I'm bringing you food daily so you can learn to trust me. 
so you can get to know me. I will be your loving father, your God. I want you to know me. You know, some of us have this false idea that the Old Testament God is angry and judgy and the New Testament God is all nice and happy and flowers. But this shows us that there is a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is the same God yesterday, today, and forever from Genesis to Revelation. The picture of God in Genesis 1 and in Exodus 16 and in the incarnation and on the cross and at the end of Revelation is the same God. And it is the same story. He is a holy God, and he calls us to follow him. He is a loving and merciful God and offers us grace and salvation on the basis of his mercy. And so he provides mercy. In the morning, there will be manna, and in the evening, quail. And so they go out in the morning, and they gather what looks like coriander seed, but it's white, and when they bake it, it tastes like a honey cakes or something, they said. And then every evening, there's quail. And the next morning, the same thing. The manna is there again. And the next evening, there's quail again. He is providing for them. Why? Well, according to verse four, God is testing them. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. I will test them. Now, when we hear test in association with God, we still, we, we think of test as an exam, right? Like a final exam, a big certification exam, your law exams, you know, like all these exams, right? But basically the idea is, in our thinking, is God is going to test Israel, meaning he's going to tell them to do something, and if they don't do it, he's going to strike them. Or you've got to do this to prove you're worthy. If you follow everything that I say, then I will bless you, is, is the way we read God testing. But you have to remember something. The law of God comes in Exodus 19. God doesn't deliver the Ten Commandments and his instructions until Exodus 19. The law comes after Israel has already been delivered. And that's pretty huge. God does not deliver Israel because they obediently follow him. Rather, he delivers them because he loves them. They are his people. And the laws that he gives are an invitation into a relationship with him so they can become the people he has made them to be. So they can enjoy the fullness of that relationship. And in this sense, that word test is probably better understood as training or exercise or practice something that that causes you to learn or be strengthened or grow. It's what the New Testament phrase discipline means. It's exercises and practice that strengthen you. A year and a half ago, a year and a half ago, I went into a building that I don't like to go into if I can avoid it, and a guy that I barely knew knocked me out and stabbed me in the knee with a knife. Now, others call that ACL surgery, but that's functionally what happened. (laughs) You go into a building you don't want, and a mostly stranger knocks you out and stabs you in the leg. Now, if you get stabbed in the leg and knocked out, you don't feel well for a couple of days. And in fact, in the recovery process, I, I had an unusable leg. It had been repaired, but I had no flexibility. Scar tissue was going to build, and the muscle had atrophied completely. I had to start going to rehab which despite all the things that you've probably heard, my rehab was great, they were great, they were fantastic. 
but they also made me work. And so I would go in several days a week exercising, and at first it was baby steps of just trying to gain a little bit of flexibility and avoid scar tissue. And by the end, I was gaining strength again. It was a lot of daily work and every other day work at the rehab place, but the point of that daily strengthening was so that I would gain freedom again. I could have avoided doing all of that, and I would have been left with a leg that didn't work the way it does today. That daily practice, strengthening, was testing in the way that this is talking about, to give me freedom because of the strength. Similarly, there's a, or just kind of another way of thinking about this is one of my favorite artist musicians is the Avett Brothers. They're kind of a folk uh, indie sort of band. I saw them play at uh, Wolf Trap recently, and one of the things about the Avett Brothers is they're actually brothers, okay? They're both musically talented, but they've been playing together their whole lives. So they take musical talent and they take a relationship that has been cultivated through several decades of friendship and playing together and brotherhood and playing together and friendship and playing together. So that when they're up on stage, they can take a song that they've written together and played so many times and play it uniquely, beautifully, uniquely, creatively because their relationship has been cultivated over time, playing together so many times that every time they get together, it's not just two talented musicians showing up on stage, it's two talented musicians who have played together so many times that they know how to think each other's thoughts. They know how to play off of each other. They know when to come in and when to pull out. They know how this music can sound and be created anew every night. That did not happen with just one practice. God lays out the instructions for Israel, and he says, I want you to gather just enough for each day. Do not save it till the next day. It will be, it'll rot. And on the sixth day, gather twice as much manna. On the seventh day, you shall rest, and the manna will survive that time. God is giving them these instructions and this daily way of providing for them as a way to reorient them towards God, both to strengthen and cultivate them as his people and also to deepen the relationship so that the freedom and creativity and life to the full can be had as they become God's people. God wants them to trust him. To trust him. One of the ways we see the trust is not just in the manna, but it's in the Sabbath, right? So it says on the sixth day you gather twice as much so that on the seventh day you can rest. Now they've just gone through a couple of days where every night the manna turned to maggots and rotted. And so on the sixth day, they're supposed to gather twice as much and God says, it will survive, trust me. But Israel, remember Israel had been slaves in Egypt. Do you know how many days off they had ever had? None. When you are a slave, you have no days off. This is the first instance in history of any civilization of a day off. When God says that on the seventh day, you will rest and trust me that the manna will survive. The Sabbath was a gift, but Israel needed to trust that the manna would last and not rot. And they needed to see that even the thing like the Sabbath was a gift, a day of rest in me. To trust God is to see that even his commands are a gift and not a burden. We see the laws of God as chains, constraining us from doing what we want, God trying to keep us from being happy. 
But when God says, honor your parents, or love your enemies, or keep sex within the confines of marriage, or forgive those who offend you, or give generously and care for the poor, or die to self, these are not chains to constrain us from happiness. These are blessings and gifts. But we need to trust God in that, to believe that following him is the fullest life we can possibly have. And as we walk in trust and obedience, we get to know God. That's ultimately what God wants. He wants his people to know him. We see this in verses nine and 10 and verse 12. When the Lord invites Israel to come near so that they can behold the glory of the Lord, And verse 12 says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God, throughout Scripture, wants us to know him. Here he provides his presence. He provides his presence in the pillar of cloud that leads them, and also in this particular story, he appears in his glory. But think about how God also provides his presence for them. Every day, he provides manna, a visible and edible, tangible reminder of God's presence with them. It was daily provision. God with them. God's withness is a theme throughout scripture. He wants us to come near, to know that he is with us, to see him in the daily manna to see him in his glory, to see him and hear him in prayer because he wants you to draw near and see that he is with you and that he is your provider. He draws them near and he shows them that he will provide for them. And what's amazing is he's trying to cultivate a thankfulness rather than grumbling in the daily provision that God, everything you have is from God. You depend on God today. You depend on God tomorrow. And seeing God as provider and even being thankful in daily stuff is actually really hard for us because we do not need a provider. Each of you is, by and large, a master of your own needs. You are in control of your food and your vacation and your savings. You've got it all under control, and you actually don't need a provider. You are your own provider. I am a master of my atmosphere. In fact, I'm a little bit of an atmosphere snob. Now, what what do I mean by that is I love controlling the atmosphere in any room I'm in. So the lighting, the music, the, the temperature. When it's hot, that AC goes down. When it's cold in the winter, I can build a fire or turn the heat up. I love having music in the background, and I hate overhead lighting. Overhead lighting should be reserved for the sun and nothing else. And I'll be a snob about it if I go into your house. And I'll be a snob about it in my own house because I can control it all, right? It's 100 degrees outside and I walk in and it's like 52 in my house. It's great. Music's too loud, I'll put it on in the other room. Just this light on, just the windows cracked, you know, the lighting at just the right, everything's just right. The couch, the blankets, the, right? You do the same thing. You control your environment. We are masters of our environment. The sun outside 
blazing heat can't stop us from cool fall, spring weather inside of our houses, right? Think about that. You are Lord. You are your provider. You don't need anything. Some of you have kids who are picky eaters or had kids that were picky eaters, the kind that would only eat cucumbers, like that was the, the biggest fruit or vegetable they would go near. And a cucumber is not really a vegetable, it's just water with some skin that often you peel off, right? So your kids are like, yeah, I'm gonna have some more cucumbers. Why, why are your kids picky about what they're eating when they're little? Because they can be. They're picky because they can be. Israel was facing starvation, death. They doubted God. They needed a provider. We are so full, we do not see that we need God. He wants to cultivate a trust in him for Israel, for us, but we don't need him. Or at least we don't think we do. Ultimately, God is trying to bring Israel into relationship with him. The manna was a test in the sense of training, cultivating, because God wants to cultivate a daily relationship with them. Like Eden, when Adam and Eve walk in the cool of the day and talk with God, walk and talk with God, and had a relationship, God is saying, I want you daily to experience me. The manna was a way that they literally experienced God's presence with them every single day. That's what God wants for us, to know and experience his love, his mercy, his provision, his withness, his with usness, and to trust him. But we can't because we are fallen. And our natural orientation is away from and apart from God. Paul puts it pretty clearly in Romans 3 when he quotes from the Psalms. Basically, no one does good. No one seeks God. No one does good. No one seeks God. Every one of us, every single person by nature is turned against God. And even if you come to faith in Christ or have grown up as a Christian, we're still selfish too. Like Israel, we forget who God is and what he has done for us. So we live oriented apart from God. But thankfully, the story of Exodus and of the manna was a story that didn't just end for Israel there. It was a story pointing ahead, right? It's a story pointing ahead to what Jesus does. We had the story read of Jesus feeding the 5,000, which is recorded in all the Gospels. In doing so, Jesus is out in the wilderness with a bunch of people, a bunch of Israelites, who are hungry, and he provides bread and meat. In the wilderness, for people, he is reenacting that Exodus scenario of providing manna in the wilderness. But he reinterprets it in himself. In John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am. After, after feeding the 5,000, he tells the people, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying, Moses and the manna and all that the Lord did was pointing to me. I am the one who delivers you from bondage, but bondage to sin and death. 
I am the one who enables you to be brought near to God. I am the manna you need. You need me more than you need bread or water. Literally, you need Jesus more than you need bread or water. Who are you becoming? What is the trajectory of the orientation of the culture of your life? It's seen in the daily choices and actions, the motivations of your heart. You are either on a trajectory Godward or the opposite. God wants us to be transformed, to have an identity that is found in Christ and how God uniquely made and called you. He wants you to know him and his love. But to do so, we need to trust Jesus, to recognize we need to be radically reoriented on a daily basis, and to draw near each day and be fed by him, filled by him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have come that we might have life. And in you, we are fed. But we struggle with doubts and our own challenges in life. And it's hard for us to see both our need and our disorientation and to believe that what you're offering and following you is life to the full. Give us faith, Lord. Reorient us and bring us near. Amen.